Welcome back to Building Better Basketball Season 2, the Basketball Australia Coaches Podcast. I'm Neil Gray, the Community Coach Development Manager for Basketball Australia. Today I'm joined by an Australian who's been part of one of the NBA's biggest franchises and worked with Doc Rivers and Joel Embiid to name two, but not many of you will know her name. Carmen Colomar started off her working career with the AIS before moving into the world of rugby with the Brumbies and the Brisbane Broncos. In 2021, she then got the opportunity of a lifetime to join the Philadelphia 76ers as the Director of Sports Science, before returning home very recently to take up the position of the Head of Performance at the Perth Glory Football Club. Welcome to Building Better Basketball, Carmen, and thank you so much for giving up some of your time today to come on. It's a pleasure to be here, Neil, and uh, thank you for having me on. Carmen, can you tell us a little bit about your role with the Sixers, how you ended up there, and what you're doing um, back in Australia now? Sure. So my role with the Sixers was, well, the title was Director of Sports Science. Um, and I guess sports science covers a lot of different disciplines these days. But primarily my role there was really to collect a lot of information, analyze a lot of information, and then present that in a way that um, was really usable for, for everyone in our entire athlete care department. So the athlete care department was um, made up of the performance coaches, uh, medical, physio, and um, massage therapists, and so on. So essentially, I collected what inf whatever information I could and I thought was useful and presented it in a way that provided a, a holistic picture of, of the athlete. And that information also helped the coaches as well um, because we had about 12 coaches in total, which sounds like a lot, but when you've got 15 players on your roster and they really do need that individual care, uh, that information really helped them, especially with the players that uh, would only play a few minutes every, every game. So it would be really important for them to be getting a lot of court work and a lot of practice and so on. But of course, making sure that they're not doing too much, um, but then they're also getting the right stimulus that they need. So if that was low data or potentially um, any red flags that we may have picked up, whether that was due to playing a lot more or traveling a lot more or so on. So essentially it was how could I present a complete picture of this athlete to make sure that they're doing enough, not too much, and we're just not changing things too quickly. Um, so how did I get there? Well, I know in sport it is, it's quite trite, but you know, it really is who you know. And uh, so when I was at the Brumbies, I was fortunate enough to work with Simon Rice, who was head of physiotherapy there. And uh, Simon is just, he's probably one of the best um, practitioners I've ever worked with. He has a really strong SNC background, but of course he's a, a sports physio as well. So he was really good at tying all that information together. And we worked together really, really well. We just understood each other. Um, he's very big picture oriented. I'm quite detail oriented. so. Together, um, we just complemented each other when we were looking after athletes and making decisions about them. So um, I then went on to the Broncos and he said the Brumbies for another season. And then he was fortunate enough to get the, um, the role of head of, uh, sorry, VP of athlete care. So vice president of athlete care. Um, so the structure is a little bit different in the NBA in that. Um, so usually in Australia, uh, the head of performance would sit above the entire performance department, whereas in the NBA, the VP of athlete care sits above all of medical, all physios, um, all of the performance staff and, and sports science and nutrition and so on. So that's Simon's role there. 
and he was there for a few months and then the the role came up um for the director of sports science and they asked if he knew anyone and he said yeah i think i do know someone and um he offered me the role and i thought long and hard about it i actually almost initially turned it down and then um and then i thought you know what once in a lifetime opportunity like how can you how can you say no to this and yeah so i went over there i did two seasons with them and um you know i think sometimes um in sport people put their professional lives ahead of their personal lives a lot and i'd always done that and i think for once i thought okay maybe it's about time i put my personal life uh, ahead of my professional life so came back for for love and um and yeah so and I'm, I'm happy with the choice i made i do i do miss it but um but i'm also very very happy with the, the choice i made to come back to australia and how how did um how how much of a shock was it a culture shock i suppose going from rugby in australia which obviously in some states is is really big but is still not the the main show in town really anywhere to the potentially one of the biggest leagues in the world and working with uh, people that have uh, the ability to probably buy the Broncos or the or the Brumbies if they want? Uh, so that was a bit of a shock. I think in Australia, especially in the football codes, the ones I worked in anyway, uh, there is a big culture of, um, let's say, you know, you just tell the athletes what to do and you expect that they'll do it. Go get in the ice bath for 15 minutes, go and do this, go and do that. Um, whereas in the NBA, it's extremely different. You do not just tell the, the athletes what to do. It's really about building trust initially with the, with the athletes and then building that rapport because you've got to remember like some of these, these players, they might get bounced around to four teams in just one season. So they have seen so many different practitioners, each probably with different ways of doing things. So how do they know that you know what you're talking about? How do they know that you have their best interests at heart? Um, so I think a, a big part of that was, or a big shock that I had was, okay, right. I, I've got to really work on getting to know this athlete, getting to know like, what have they done before? What has worked for them? Um, what do they like to do and so on. And then actually building that strong rapport with them before being able to prescribe things to them. So, whereas in, in Australia, um, I've always gotten along with the athletes very well. So um, it's been pretty easy to just say, oi, do this, get in the ice bath or go and do this conditioning drill or so on. So, so it was a really, a really big culture shock um, in that sense. Did you ever find yourself slipping in some Australianisms when you were talking to them as well? And they just were a bit confused. I still do that when sometimes I say something and people are like, where, where did that come from? And I'm like, oh, people say it all the time in Scotland. It's just normal kind of thing. <laughs> Oh, definitely. Uh, one that I, I say quite often is, how are you going? And a lot of times the athletes would stop and be like, uh, how am I going? Uh, walking? <laughs> like, like, they didn't understand <laughs> what I meant by how are you going? So, um, uh, yeah, there was there was a little bit of that. Your area of expertise is obviously one of the things that the average kind of community basketball coach isn't going to either have the time, ability, skill or knowledge to incorporate into their training. But Mostly it's through um, a lack of knowledge or, or skill rather than a dislike of the whole concept um, that that's the case. What's one of the biggest misconceptions you think there is about um, sports science and 
I suppose, the community of basketball outside of high performance? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that it involves a lot of tech. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think um, when I got to the Sixers, for example, there was a lot of tech, a lot of tech that they had purchased and nobody was using. So, you know, of course, I had the ability to buy more tech if I wanted tech when I was there. But I thought, okay, what have we got to use and what is the essential? What are the essentials? What can we get the most valuable information from in the most non-invasive way possible? And then um, being able to report on that. And I think in, say, uh, sports that are less resourced, I don't even think you even really need that much tech. Of course, like GPS or LPS is extremely, can be extremely valuable so long as it's valid and reliable. Um, but I think there's also a lot of value in that, that how can you monitor things that are already happening, whether that's just, you could just literally do RPE times duration, just asking an athlete, you know, how was that scale of one to 10 after each session and just tracking that throughout the week. And then you can also look at travel. So I know the, the travel and community basketball would be quite minimal, but let's just say in the NBA, for example, one thing um, I looked at was our travel density. So, you know, that was looking at the amount of flights we've taken, the amount of uh, distance we've covered, the time zones we've crossed, and then weighted that, whether they were, we were going east versus west. So it was a really non-invasive way of, of monitoring things that would, again, add that extra layer of information about the athlete as well, whether that's really in relation to their readiness, fatigue, and so on. So I think in community basketball, there can be, you can do plenty of, let's just say, monitoring or measuring um, without the need for a lot of tech. You touched on it a little bit um, when you were explaining your role at Sixers about the, the volume of coaches that they had and, and the org chart, I suppose. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how your role worked in with the, I guess, more traditional um, skill-focused coaches? And um, you, again, you touched on how you um, built those relationships with the players, but for many of them, I suppose, at that level, they'll be so focused on performing on the court um, that off the court can sometimes become like secondary to them or something that they want to spend more time getting shots up or working on their... Um, D or something that they don't then focus on the sports science things that they need to do to get better? Yeah, so first part of your question, um, a lot of working with the, we call them development coaches. Um, so when we looked at those athletes, maybe the, the rookies, the ones that didn't get to play that much or maybe didn't play at all, you know, they'd be pretty much training every day. Uh, they'd be on court, whether it was just getting shots up or actually playing, we call them low minute games or games for the minute uh, for the players who didn't play that many minutes. And so I would have conversations with the development coaches that worked with those individuals. And I would show them the data, whether it was from the game or all the load monitoring data we'd been collecting. And, you know, we, we really didn't cover, we really didn't collect or monitor that many different variables. But let's just say we were looking at hard accelerations and decelerations, high-speed running, some sprints and so on. And if I showed that to them and said, oh, look, they've actually had a lot of sprints and had a lot of high-speed running, what they're lacking is this these hard axle decels. So how about, are there some drills that we could do that are more half-court work, um, that are more just working around the D, getting shots up and so on. And, and they would just design a drill just based off the information that I gave them. So that relationship worked really well because we felt that the athletes were getting exactly what they need from that, that stimulus perspective based on the information that we had. Also with the, 
the secondary stuff, as you said, yeah, of course, you know, they just want to spend hours and hours and hours on the court uh, shooting. We'd have some players that would come in all morning, they'd be on the court for four hours and they'd actually come back in later that evening if it wasn't a game day and they'd be putting up shots for another four or five hours. And they might have their own personal uh, shooting coaches that they'd come back in with later that night. So, yeah, you can definitely see that that working in the gym or doing some additional conditioning uh, wasn't really a priority for them. And we had to make sure we were balancing what they were doing on court with what they potentially needed in the gym. So for me, you know, I would way rather in pretty much any sport that, a, that an athlete is getting their conditioning work from their actual sport. I would never pull an athlete from the court or the pitch if they are capable and, um, you know, there's no red flags for them to continue on the pitch to then go and do additional conditioning work. So, you know, that wasn't really that necessary for those guys by any means, but the lifting component certainly was. And, and there was a big buy-in with that. You know, I'm not a, a strength coach as such, but our strength coaches would work individually with those players. So it was really about getting them in uh, potentially uh, 45 minutes before they were on court to have a quick lift and then they were straight on court. So then lift was done and then court was done and they were they were done for the next two days, let's just say. You touched on as well uh, that you don't need technology to do this, which I'm sure the community coaches um, were relieved that they won't have to blow their budget on things like that. But some of the um, work that you've done is around the, the value of data. And we're living in an age now where kids as young as 12 are running around with um, Fitbits or fitness trackers on their wrists that can collect and track data and they could very easily give them to a, a coach after a, a training session or um, after a, a practice that they've done. Is is that something that would be valuable for a coach to look at even if it was just for trends compared to where they are in the season and where they've how they've performed in a game on the weekend, do you think? Well, I think a couple of limitations with that is uh, first, I don't believe many of those uh, fitness trackers are actually valid. So I don't know where it's at with that. I did see a recent study looking at, at sleep scores and readiness scores and so on. And there are some that are better than others for sure. I think, you know, they, I, th I believe they overestimate or can highly underestimate, say, calories burnt, for example. I'm not sure how accurate they are with the, the heart rate and so on. So I guess the first thing would be to, to check what the validity actually is. Um, the second thing is, you know, you have to make sure that they're actually even allowed to wear them in their sport. You know, for example, in, in the NBA, players aren't allowed to wear anything at all. We had a, we had a player that... Uh, we wanted him to wear a continuous glucose monitor and there had to be a period of about uh, I think seven days where he could actually wear it straight but we actually couldn't even find a period of seven days without games so and because he wasn't even allowed to wear that on the court so you know I would be I don't know if I'd even want an athlete to wear something like that during during a game uh, as I mentioned before and I know it sounds so basic and rudimentary but you know, as simple as duration and, and RPE, that can be such a valuable technique just to, to look at the fluctuations in, in game time or you know, intensity or just load, let's just call it. And then also throughout the week as well. One of the favorite things that I read when doing um, some research before you came on was an article you contributed to for World Rugby magazine, which 
talked about momentum and if there was such a thing in sport and it's it's one of those questions that whether you're in the stand or you're in the pub watching or you're just talking sport um especially in basketball with um hot hand shooting or um like if someone's just stone cold with the ball you you talked about um luck and behavior versus momentum and i i just found it fascinating and i will put the link to the article in the show notes so everyone can read it afterwards but could i just get you to i guess expand on it in your own words yeah look uh, a lot of that stemmed from uh the research in my phd which is looking at uh systems thinking essentially and um so I think in basketball, it has been dispelled about the whole hot hand theory and, and so so on. For sure, there are there are periods where a player can just be more, uh, let's say, on than, than other times. So I think if you look at sport like a, a complex system, which it is, uh, there is always a, a reinforcing feedback loop. So... Um, or a stabilising feedback loop. So, for example... Uh, some of the research I found was that if a player, if a team, sorry, can quickly attack, so in a transition, for example, they're more likely to be successful because what that does is it doesn't allow the opposition, now the defensive team, to reorganize and, and be in place and be ready to, to defend, for example. Um, now, if you do that slowly, it does allow that opposition to, to get into their defensive formation and to, to defend that appropriately. So I think what can stop momentum is stronger teams that are better at that reorganization, that are better at um, losing the ball than being able to quickly counter defend, let's call it. Um, so I think that's one thing. So when a, when a team is on a bit of a momentum streak, um, that could be due to the opposition being poor at their reorganization and, and so on. The, the other thing is that um, there are many indicators of fatigue and one of the, the leading indicators of fatigue is um, technical breakdown and execution breakdown. And I think when a team, uh, for whatever reason, gets fatigued, um, uh, potentially they're not in position where they need to be in, they're running more than they have to, or it's been going on for, you know, it's in the second overtime and so on. Um, you'll see that um, skill quickly break down. They'll miss more shots and so on. What happens when you miss more shots? You've got to quickly run back and then, you know, you'll get the ball back and then quickly run back down and you miss another shot and you've got to quickly run back. And so it's a perpetuating cycle. So um, I think there's a, if, if, so maybe you see momentum more at the start of games could be, could be one theory because teams might be less fatigued or potentially you could say that, that fitter teams could be um, less uh, would wouldn't have that technical breakdown as much as um, less fit teams. Let's just say. I know I've gone off into about three different tangents there, but I hope that somewhat answers your question. It definitely does, and I think I genuinely I read the article I think three times because I think I got so caught up thinking about one of the um, like avenues of uh counter arguments to momentum and how that actually would play out that I was still reading the second point but was still thinking about the first point so I think it's one of those things that in any sport whether it's basketball soccer AFL you, you you're living in this perpetual myth that is 
um, kind of given to you by the commentators that are doing it on the TV that you're watching, where they talk about Steph Curry's hot and you have NBA Jam hot and in the AFL, they're permanently talking about momentum swings and consecutive goals and things like that. So um, I think it's just something that, um, especially in a period like this where you, coaches might not be coaching basketball, I think it's, it's something really valuable to read and um, like just challenge their perceptions, I suppose, of, of um, how they're coaching a game and also how they're combating um, opposition who perhaps have the, and I'm doing the inverted commas with my fingers, the momentum in a game. So yeah, definitely. Thank you, Carmen. And um, yeah, uh, like I said, I'll put the article in the show notes for everyone to click on it and, and have a read themselves. Um, our last question that we ask everyone who comes on the pod, Carmen, if you could ask one coach of, of any sport, um, whether they're with us or passed on a question, who would the coach be and what would the question be? Uh, so I like this question. Um, so when I was at the Sixers, I worked with um, our defensive coach, who was Dan Burke, who's just probably one of not only the best coaches I've ever worked with, but also one of the best people I've ever worked with. And he worked at the Pacers for a good over 20 years. So he started as a video guy and then ended up being um, assistant coach and then moved on to the Sixers. And he had the pleasure of working with Larry Bird for a very long time. And he would tell me story after story of, of Larry Bird and um, how he would leave key players at the airport because they weren't um, on the plane in time and just tell the plane to leave and they would leave, you know, foreign cities and and just an absolute hard ass, you could say, but also hilarious and just had... Um, a very interesting way of coaching and was obviously quite successful in his, in his time at, at the Pacers as head coach. So I wouldn't necessarily ask him a specific question, but I would love to just go out for a dinner with him and just, just have a good chat and just hear his story. So that would, that would definitely be my answer. Yeah, I think only probably Larry Bird and Michael Jordan and a handful of other people could probably get away with uh, pulling that kind of... Um, <laughs> trick uh, and keeping their job but yeah that's a, a fantastic answer Carmen thank you so much um, for your time um, today um, good luck with uh, everything for the A-League with the Perth Glory as well and um, whilst uh, as a passionate 76ers fan I'm very sad that you're not with the um, club anymore um, their loss is Australia's gain so it, it's great to have you um, back home so thank you very much Oh, I really appreciate it, Neil, and, and thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate that.